You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, a Saturday 3CR breakfast. And uh, it is chilly outside, but not as chilly as it has been. And uh, yesterday we were all blown away by the afternoon being very warm and delicious. So that's a very strange affair in Melbourne during winter. But today we've got lots of things to talk about. Uh, first up, um, I'm going to play you Sally McManus's speech. She's the secretary of the ACTU. She is, she gave the opening speech at the inaugural Laurie Carmichael lecture, which was held at the Capitol Theatre on Wednesday this, last week, the 20th of the of July. And the speech was the keynote speech was given by Nobel laureate Professor, uh, Professor Joseph Stieglitz, who has been talking to around the traps. Uh, you might have caught him at the Australia Institute uh, seminar. There were other ones as well. But he was speaking specifically at this particular event about the economic benefit of unions. But uh, we won't hear from him this week. We'll, I'll play you some of his speech next week. Today we're going to hear Sally McManus's opening remarks. She talks about uh, uh, Laurie Carmichael, but also a, a little bit about how this his work and uh, the issues of the day, our day, are reflected in past battles. Um, the event, uh, the inaugural uh, Laurie Carmichael lecture, was uh, supported by the ACTU, the AEU and the AMWU. Uh, they support the uh, Laurie Carmichael Centre. So anyway, we'll do that first off. But later on, we're going to talk to Alistair Cox about the invasive... He's from the Invasive Species Council about a report about the state of the nation and what's uh, affecting our environment, how we can change our approach. Uh, we're going to, to hear from the author of Daughters of Melbourne, a guide to the invisible statues of Melbourne, Murray Coote, who sounds like a bit of a, um, a, a trailblazer when it comes to history as well as uh, perspectives on Melbourne, the place we live. And uh, following that, Spike and Kelly are going to come in and they're going to talk about this fantastic series, radio series that they've got happening starting on July the 28th, starting at noon, going for an hour. It's a three-part series and it's called Homeless in Hotels, but we'll let them talk about that themselves. But before we uh, kick off, important announcement. 
If we go to war with China, there'll be no more flags for Australia Day. No more flags for Australia Day. No more flags for Invasion Day. Uprise Radio and Stick Together 3CR Fundraiser. Climate, Capitalism and the Future. Discussion and music. Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark, 235A, St George's Road, Northcote. Number 11 tram will get you there. Stop 30. Climate, Capitalism and the Future, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm, 3CR Fundraiser. Yes, that's right, today. We'd love to see you there. $10, nobody's uh, turned away. There's a raffle, there's uh, eats, there's music, there's discussion. What more could you want? Uh, Also, uh, there's um, another important announcement that you might be interested in. Listen to this. Online and in cinema Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs as well as the best Australian content Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. There you go, lots of things happening in Melbourne. Uh, the uh, As I said, we're going to kick off the program, uh, 3CR Breakfast, with Sally McManus. And this is the opening speech that she gave at the inaugural Laurie Carmichael Lecture, with, which was on at the Capitol Theatre on Wednesday of last week. Here we go. Mighty and fearless leader of the uh, trade union movement, who we are very proud to stand alongside, Sally McManus. Uh, Thank you, Karina. Also, I want to acknowledge country as well and say that the ACTU supports the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Um, It's great to be here to launch the first Laurie Carmichael lecture by the Carmichael Centre. The ACTU, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, the Australian Education Union are very happy to be the funding partners for the Carmichael Centre, which is hosted at the Centre for Future Work. The centre honours Laurie Carmichael's life and ongoing legacy. The truth is, I'm sure, many people in this audience would not be aware of Laurie's extraordinary contribution as a trade unionist. So I want to start by saying a few words about Laurie and why our movement chose to honour him with this research centre. Laurie Carmichael was a visionary, he was an intellectual, he was an organiser, he was a change maker, he was a communist, as you just heard, and a trade unionist through and through. Laurie was part of a long and proud tradition of working class intellectuals who found voice, their community, uh, in the collective power of the trade union movement. They used that power to transform Australia for the better. Laurie Carmichael started at the Williamson uh, uh, Naval Dockyards, which I do believe is only five kilometres away from here, And uh, there he joined the Amalgamated Engineering Union, a forerunner of today's AMWU. He was elected as his union's Melbourne District Secretary in 1958 
and in 1972 became the assistant, National Assistant Secretary in the newly formed Amalgamated Metalworkers Union. He was elected as ACTU Assistant Secretary in 1987. But his influence didn't derive from his impressive list of titles. Laurie was completely dedicated to rank and file union organising and to action, to support and, the educate, to support and educate union delegates. His union was a member-led uh, union and it was his direct connection to his members which was a true source of Laurie's influence. His union was famous for winning advances in pay and conditions that would flow on to other sections of the workforce. Do wonder whether that's the wage price spiral they may be talking about today. This happened against the stubborn resistance, of course, of government and big business. In 1964, the then Minister for Labor, Billy McMahon, said that Carmichael was one of the most evil men in the trade union movement. So coming from Billy McMahon, I think it's more of a compliment than an insult. Laurie was at the forefront of campaigns against the Menzies government, government's penal powers, the anti-union laws that stop workers from taking industrial action. Mass worker action in 1969 um, effectively saw the ending of these laws. Across his career, Laurie directly contributed to countless wage rises and improvements in conditions, including leading the campaign for the 38-hour um, working week. He was a vital force behind the accord between the ACTU and the ALP government to lead to the epic reforms like Medicare and universal superannuation. I want to acknowledge that Bill Kelty, his partner with this, is um, here today as well. He was an internationalist. One of his proudest accomplishments was his involvement in the movement against the war in Vietnam. Laurie was there and this was very much, when it was very much a minority cause and not popular. He recounted his first peace rally in 1965 when there was just 50 people there. In May 1970, more than 100,000 protested in Melbourne for peace in the famed Monitorium March. Laurie was integral to the organising of these protests through his role in the Melbourne Peace Committee. These mass protests, of course, didn't just happen. It required hard work over many years by people such as Laurie who were willing to build um, something small into a genuine mass movement. Laurie was a great believer in worker education. He dedicated a significant part of his life to enhancing vocational education and connecting it to the emerging needs of a modern workforce. That is why the AEU is one of the sponsors. The education programs Laurie put together for his union were legendary. They connected theory to practice and empowered workers to take more informed action. He took a great interest in changes in technology and the future of the world of work. He was always future-focused. He saw the future as a site of contest. At, the time, at a time of massive technological change for his industry, Laurie identified the major threats posed by computerisation, which is a funny word, isn't it? We don't really use that now, digitalisation, and new forms of communication. He also saw the opportunities. He believed that workers needed to be proactive in educating themselves about these technological changes and gaining new skills required to thrive in a future economy. 
He knew to do this, they needed to be organised in their unions to take action to make sure the changes happened on their terms. They could shape the inevitable change, not just be victims of it. But this required strong unions advancing workers' interests at these, in these times of change. Laurie passed away in August 2018. But his legacy endures and the lessons of his long and remarkable time as a unionist lives on. Tonight, we're so honoured to hear from Professor Joseph Stiglitz about the economic importance of unions. I don't want to steal his thunder, but there are some really fundamental um, lessons from Laurie's life and activism that we should mention. During his union campaign for the shorter working week, Laurie wrote the big business and its political allies said this, he wrote this, they will try to show that the shorter working hours, hours of work would not be good for the country and that unions are ruin, ruining the country. Sound familiar, hey? I was reminded of this recently when the union movement's argument for an increase to the minimum wage resulted in an historic wage increase for a quarter of working people, 5.2% for those on the minimum wage and 46 for those relying on award wages. We, of course, were inundated with accusations that we were wrecking the economy and that unions would drive up inflation and ruin the country. The same is happening now for any union who dares ask for a pay rise that keeps up with the cost of living, despite increasing productivity, despite record profits, despite um, low unemployment, all, of course, to protect um, capital's profit share. It seems, of course, the more things change, the more they stay exactly the same. Laurie never apologised for taking action to improve the lives of working people, and neither do we today. But he did believe that unionists needed to be educated on economic realities to rebut our opponents who speak of the national interests where really they're talking about self-interest. So it's in Laurie's footsteps today, the union movement ensures that the voices of workers are heard in the debates about Australia's economic future. And we say unapologetically, Australia's future prosperity will, built, will be built on supporting workers and their unions. The economy just does not exist just in spreadsheets or shareholders' reports, is not what first-year economic subject textbooks theorise or what abstract projections would like it to be. The economy is working people wondering how they will make ends meet when interest rates go up but their wages do not. There are powerful economic and political interests in our country who oppose every improvement to workers' lives and conditions by saying it's bad for the economy. And every time, every time we do so, the union movement um, um, will stand up to them. We're the creators and the guardians of the workers' rights that allow us to live decent lives outside of work. We are the creators of a new future, of a better future, based on growing and a productive economy that is built on decent work and well-paid jobs. An economy that allows working people to pursue their ambitions in the workplace, enjoy their lives outside of work, and be recognised for the contribution that we make to our society. This is the economic, but also the moral case for unionism. And it's by building this better future together that we honour the legacy of Laurie Carmichael. Thank you very much. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM.
the voice of the community. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants, with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And uh, on the line, we've got Andrew Cox. I'm sorry. Um, it's too early in the morning for me, Andrew. Yeah, uh, you're, you're the uh, CEO of the... Uh, Invasive Species Council. Now, that's a really important issue when it comes to the environment in Australia, isn't it? Because of uh, the problems that uh, invasive species uh, have been found to uh, have on our environment in the State of Environment report that's just come out. That's right. Yeah, look, we were formed 20 years ago um, simply because the writer Tim Lowe wrote a book highlighting the impact of invasive species on the natural environment. At, at that point, it wasn't widely understood how big an impact it was. I mean, it, um, it's, it's pests and weeds um, and even diseases. Uh, really, it's like a slow burn issue. Um, Colonisation brought lots of new uh, exotic animals and plants to the country, like cats and pet birds and all of the garden plants. Malayne? Yeah, and it's, they slowly spread and um, cause these big impacts. And Australia's got the world's worst mammal extinction rate, and we're now up to over 30 mammal species extinct, and about three-quarters of those were caused by foxes and cats. So um, and another big, big cohort through chytrid fungus, which was an introduced fungus that killed lots of our made extinct lots of our frogs. So invasive species are this big issue um, and our, our job is to make sure people understand it and that, that, that everyone's sort of work doing their best to, to actually reverse this major impact on the environment. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that, I mean, it's 20 years, which, you know, for some people, if they're young, that sounds incredibly long time. But actually it's an incredibly short time when you consider that... Uh, uh, white settlement, uh, European settlement uh, is about 240 years and uh, that slow creep has been going on ever since uh, that arrival. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's interesting to look at the rate of arrival of new species and it's uh, large. Well, we, we've stopped introducing feral animals like uh, deer and foxes and rabbits. I mean, we've got about 70 feral animals in Australia, but we used to introduce them to try to recreate Australia to look like Europe and other countries. There were specific acclimatisation societies doing that in the 1800s. Um, uh, we, don't, we don't do that now, thank goodness. But even the rate of uh, plants establishing in the wild is about 20 new plants each year are occurring. So that rate of arrival has not gone down. 
and also the, um, the extinctions from invasive species has not gone down. So over the next 20 years, scientists have predicted there's probably going to be about 100 species that have got a 50% chance of becoming extinct, and most of those are from invasive species. Yeah, yeah, it's so pretty, pretty extraordinary. Alarming. The figure that you give in the report is 80% of mammal extinctions were caused by invasive species and 20% of next round of vertebrate extinctions over the next 20 years will be caused by invasive species. That's catastrophic. That's right. And the State of the Environment report that the government released this week, um, earlier this week, does really, um, I guess, shake you up a bit about how dire the trajectory is across the board. I guess invasive species are one of many other big threats. Um, we know climate change is looming and the threats from that will grow. Um, we know that um, habitat loss is important. It's you know equally as significant as invasive species. Um, it's a, um, and even things like change fire regimes, we've got now more frequent uh, large-scale fires. They're causing a big impact. Um, there's, there's quite a few other impacts too, um, like even just the way we manage our waters. They're causing big impacts on species, and the State Environment Report really set out how bad the problem is and what the uh, governments, plural, and all of us need to be doing better to stop this, this um, tra- trajectory. Uh, you were uh, caught on camera with uh, uh, Minister Plevisek at the National Press Club Recently, um, can you tell us about that particular event and uh, its usefulness? Yeah, it was on Tuesday that the, the new Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, um launched the State of Environment Report. It was a bit delayed because the previous government sat on it. Um, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Before the election. Um, it was finished in December last year. And she um, announced, I mean, it was really her first outing as Environment Minister. She's been in the, in the job for six weeks. Uh, and she talked about um, not only the State Environment Report, but also what Labor planned to do about, about it. Now, there weren't any new promises. It was really just reiterating what Labor set out prior to the election, which was to um, overhaul the environmental laws at the federal level. And there was a major review of the environmental laws a couple of years ago, the Samuel Review, and the government has still, was still to respond to that. So she's going to release a response before the end of the year. Labor's also promised to set up a new EPA, Environmental Protection Authority, at the federal level. We don't have one, and that will improve compliance and sort of an independent authority to uh, oversee a lot of this. They also promised um, to double the number of Indigenous rangers across Australia, which is, which is excellent, and also some specific funding about recovering threatened species. So there's a bit of work that Labor promised to do. It doesn't go all the way. Uh, obviously, they're sticking to their promises for the moment, but their job is far, far, far bigger. We know that needs to be more funding for dealing with these big environmental problems. Uh, we've estimated it's probably somewhere between $1.5 to $2 billion a year needed, and at the moment they're probably spending federal and state a bit over $100 million a year. So that's just, <laughs> well, sorry, sorry uh, yeah, $100 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, it's 120 million dollars a year, not um, a year, which is well short of that sort of roughly two billion dollar a year figure. So, yeah, there's a lot more that uh, Tanya Plibersek and the new Labor government need to do. Uh, how does that interact with uh, state governments? Do you have a theory on that? Uh, look, you know, who is most responsible for managing the environment through our constitution? It is state state governments. The federal government has a few levers to pull um, around major developments. 
um, but it also has um, significant financial resources. Yeah. So really, it, the, the solution from, from government has to rely at both levels. Uh, the government, the federal government can step in in some cases, but the, the state government is the one who manages the land, manages national parks, except in a few examples, uh, manages all the threats, whether it's um, you know, land clearing, um, invasive species management uh, through biosecurity laws at the state level. So, look, it needs to happen at both levels, but obviously the federal government can provide leadership, which is what has been sorely lacking over the last decade. Yeah, actually, uh, there's been a chip, chip, chipping away because uh, the uh, the park services have been uh, they had their funding reduced. Uh, I've noticed over time, like the workers have uh, had their uh, conditions uh, reduced. Uh, also, say if you look at CSIRO, the research uh, funding for environmental issues have been reduced. You know, there were a whole range of ways that the last government tried to uh, reduce the sense that it was important to deal with environmental damage. Yeah, look, um, I mean, the federal government environmental program, the, the big one, the National Land Care Program, you know, compared to where we were 15, 20 years ago, it's it's less than half of the funding has been allocated to that. Um, yeah, certainly a lot more they could be doing, and things have declined. National park funding, I guess it's patchy across the country, right? Um, there has been a lot of new national parks created and some resources going into some of those areas. Uh, some states are doing better and some states are worse. So we certainly, but we know that... You know, the State of the Environment Report tells us there's this declining trajectory and even just protecting a national park isn't enough because, in those, for example, fires and invasive species don't respect park boundaries. We need to be doing the work across the landscape, um, private land, public land, and you know, there's a lot of great conservation work happening at the on, from, from many private landowners and organisations like Bush Heritage and Australian Wildlife Conservancy are you know, managing private reserves. So there's, there's a sort of a... Uh, stepping up from the community happening in those areas and also the, the Trust for Nature's in Victoria and, and other organisations. But uh, we, we, we've got a government's got to play their part too, of course. Do you think that there is an attitudinal issue involved uh, where European Australians uh, have a lack of appreciation of uh, the type of country Australia is? It's not a. It's not Europe. It's a, a very fragile country, very old country, and that perhaps we should be listening with bigger ears to uh, uh, custo- uh, indigenous uh, custodians of land. Absolutely, I think if we listened to them right from the start, we'd be managing Australia in a very, very different way. Uh, we also find that uh, people who live in urban areas are often becoming more detached from the natural environment. And they often think about it in very black and white terms. They often think about uh, species and interactions in a very simplistic way. They might be concerned about, oh, no, we can't kill the, uh, the feral cats because they're so cute. Um, uh, yeah. And even though they each night they are just uh, annihilating our native wildlife, uh, and they, they're often their main relationships with animals is through their pets. So we need to... People need to get out in the bush and and see see what's going on. They need to use the you know spotlight at night and, and listen to the scientists and listen to indigenous people because I think that wisdom and, and that Western science is our way forward. And um, yeah, I think that's 
that's it, it's it's for all of us. And I think if we have that greater awareness, uh, we get out and uh, use little apps like iNaturalist, and sort of they see something they're curious about, uh, take a photo of it, put it into the app, and work out what it is, and they can start then sort of understanding how it all works. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Yeah, great, great to talk, Annie. See you.
is 3CR. That's right. It is. It's 3CR and you're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. And we've got Marie Cootie on the line. G'day, Marie. How are you? G'day, Annie and listeners. Thanks for having me on. Lovely yeah. to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why we're talking to you is because of a new book that you've put out called Daughters of Melbourne, A Guide to the Invisible Statues of Melbourne. The statues <laughs> that aren't there. That's absolutely right. In, uh, in lieu of running around and actually putting up a bronze on every corner of the grid, this is the best thing I can do. Yeah, well, it's a lovely book. It's a hardback and it's, yeah. uh, and it's beautifully put together, I'll have to say. And it's actually a, uh, a, a told, uh, it's the, a, a, well, I'll, I'll just say it, a unique history of Melbourne Nam told through the lives of 50 remarkable women. Tell us about how you, uh, oh, in fact, you're, you're a bit of an aficionado of Melbourne, aren't you? <laughs> Tell us about I that. I am. I'm very connected to this place, and I must acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of Kulin Nation because, um, like them, I really feel I belong here. And for me, life's about meaning and making meaning in the place you're in with your local community and your tribe. And, you know, uh, it just doesn't seem to me to make much sense that people today know more about Frida Kahlo than they do about Ellis Rowan or Valley Myers or Zelda Prano or whoever. I mean, to me, I mean, much as I love Frida Kahlo, her life has had no impact on mine at all. But <laughs> Bella Burr and, and Vita Goldstein and Henrietta Dugdale got me the vote, for God's sake. And, uh, and yet, we don't celebrate these fabulous Melbourne women who have who've dedicated their lives to advancing the culture and the community and the commerce of this place. They're just ignored, and it's it's not good enough. I'm being very impatient with it now, but um, mm. yes. No, well, <laughs> well, actually, I'm with you. Uh, uh, you know, there's this idea that uh, women have been meek and mild and behind the scenes, and you know, mm. or kept down. But in actual fact, if you start looking into it, they're actually written out of history, aren't they? Yeah, deliberately so, and it's, yeah. it's not an accident. It's deliberate, and I uncover instances through the through my book about. Uh, you know, journalists who deliberately make statements like the Bell's Beach title has never been won by Victorians since 1973, when it has, by Gail Cooper in 74, 5 and 6. Um, and he wrote that in The Age, and it didn't say on the front of The Age, this is The Age for Men Only. Um, <laughs> it's it's, a, it's an abrogation of your journalistic duty to make statements like that that are blatantly incorrect. And the fact that he wasn't looking for it, slash not interested in it, slash didn't even occur to him, is an illustration of how easy it is to just write women out of history. And then that's just one example of, of many. And, you know, people would say that statues are, you know, expensive and useless and all that sort of thing. But... Um, and, and if that's the case, then get rid of the lot. But if you got rid of the lot, that doesn't really help women and their uh, acknowledgement of their contribution that they've made to Melbourne. And uh, I've even thought of a way of funding it. So it's not really that big a problem, uh, apart from the fact that there's this constant blocking from, you know, the privileged establishment, the gatekeepers of culture, the gatekeepers of power, who attract and reflect their own image. Mm. When, when they create history, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, public art is another issue altogether. Um, I'm quite partial to a bit of public art. It's, it's quite uh, strange that uh, 
but that's another talk. I mean, mm. you. I mean, uh, there's a really nice piece in one one of your uh, in the background piece about you. It says Melbourne's physical, intellectual, and psychogeographical development as explored through a collection of paintings of the built cityscape. That was. To, this is to do with the fact that you've also got a exhibition. Yeah. Right? Well, that that piece that um, descriptor there that you just read belongs to another history that I wrote called "The Art of Being Melbourne," which is a history of Melbourne uh, as told through paintings of this CBD space from oh, 1835 to today. So it's a collection of paintings of the grid, really, from yeah. 1835 to now, and it, it it explores how you know artists reflect who we think we are as a city, you know, because artists carry all of that, uh, you know, the trend, the fashion, the zeitgeist, the mm. postulation of, you know, it's, it's a spin and it's reflection and all of those things. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting interesting way to look at history, as is uh, the story of our women, an interesting way to look at history. Rather than just dates, I like to take a slice of a certain perspective and, and you know, have a look at what that means. So I how mean, did you pick the women? How did, I mean... I mean, because there would have been lots. I mean, there's, I mean the ones oh, you mentioned, I do know. So That's great. Uh, a lot of my own heroes, you know, like Wendy Saddington, my favourite, who's on the cover. Um, you know, people today barely even know who Wendy Saddington was. And to me, she's a giant of our blues and rock history. Um, but all the suffragists, of course, brilliant artists like um, Ellis Rowan and Bally Myers, uh, Aboriginal warriors like Louisa Briggs and and women today uh, who are working really hard in that space, Eleanor Burke from the Europe Truth and Justice Commission and um, Jill Gallagher from uh, the Treaty Commission and so on. And it's um, there's just some brilliant, brilliant women doing amazing stuff. And I think Melbourne's culture, like through our earliest... Um, uh, indigenous women and colonial women, post-colonial immigrant refugee women have put down layers upon layers of fabulous culture for us that we enjoy today as Melbourne's rich culture. And it, we would not be living in this, envi- in this intellectual milieu without their work, without their activism, without their commentary, without their art, without their humour. I mean, Zelda Soprano, right? You, you would know all yeah, about yeah. Zelda, Annie, I'm sure. And what a great sense of humour she had. You know, she chained herself to the Commonwealth Building to fight for equal pay for women. And she used to get on the tram and offer the tram conductor 75% of the fare yeah, to illustrate <laughs> the gender pay gap. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah, there were so many to choose from. Um, I had to draw the line under it at, at, at some certain stage, but I could have gone on, um, you know, and celebrated forever. And maybe I'll have to do more. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure. But, you know, uh, I'd love to to highlight these fantastic people. I'm really, really impatient with the rubbish that we get served up all the time, which is military men, politicians and sportsmen. It's just so one-dimensional and shallow and it just repeats the same old, in fact, entrenches and distorts, really, the same old Anzac myths and sports myths and stuff that I don't think are doing us any favours. Have a look at the world. (laughs) Mm. What's your plan to... uh, uh uh, finance the building of these, a, a better perspective oh, on history? Tell me. 
Well, you would know from uh, looking around you that every office tower that goes up and every residential apartment block that goes up tends to have some kind of abstract badge parked out the front, um, you know, as a graphic uh, embellishment. Um, The average cost for a statue is about 10 to 15 grand from what I understand. That's that's lunch money for a developer. So instead of an abstract badge, I think there should be a list of women that that have to be worked through over the next 20 years. Thanks. Start today. (laughs) Fantastic. I love it. It's fantastic. (laughs) You're completely right. And also you're a uh, self-publisher. I mean, really, this book is fabulous. It looks beautiful. I'll repeat uh, the name again. Daughters of Melbourne, A Guide to the Invisible Statues of Melbourne by Marie Cootie. You have to go and buy it. Because it is Thank a great you. book. Show us. Thank you. Tell yeah. us how you did uh, it. Well, I self-publish everything because um, my work about Melbourne has always been deemed too niche for all publishers. They don't want to know about it until <laughs> I'm successful with it. Yeah. And as soon as I'm successful with it, everybody's on the same um, rock, right? Suddenly, yeah, yeah. suddenly I have company. Uh, so whether it was my very first uh, Melbourne book, A History of Now, which has had four editions, which covers everything about Melbourne you ever wanted to ask, um, or my first children's books about Melbourne, again, you know, so I published them myself and I just, whatever I earn, I put into the next book. And so then I did the art of being Melbourne, of course. I've done a couple of kids, three or four kids' books on Melbourne and um, and now this one on women. And basically um, the process, um, I'm pretty um, adept at the process now, so that's that's all works okay, but it is a an undertaking. I've got to say, there's a lot of work involved, and you've well, really I'm sure got... there's lots of grandparents out there who have got their children in other in other countries with grandkids who they'd love to buy a book about Melbourne for. I know my oh, well, sister would do that. That would be lovely. Uh, they can, they can go online to melbournestyle.com.au and get one there. That'd be great. Yeah. Now tell me. Um, mm. Uh, there is a there is an exhibition, isn't there? Of uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. So there's 50, what I've done in the book is portraits of these women because when you're doing history, Annie, you deal with lots of old sepia photos and pretty crappy yeah. black and white newspaper, you know, with screen dot on it, and some makes the people feel remote and distant from mm. you. And I wanted these women to feel alive and relevant to today. So I did portraits of each one. Oh, and so you're a painter. I've tried uh, well, yes, An artist. I paint, I draw. This is actual digital art, but I do oh, paint, right. draw and take photos, yeah. This is sort of cubist-y shapes overlaid on each other to make portraits. That's the best way I can describe it. All right. And, um, and so, yes, throughout the book are all these portraits of these women. And I'm having an exhibition of them on the 30th of July at Melbourne Style Gallery. And, um, and so it'll be some of these women from the book, plus others. I've done... Some journos like um, uh, Lee Sales, and I've done uh, a Tonga Tem, and um, some further um, further development work on Wendy Saddington because she later changed her name to Gandhava Gadasi when she became a a, um, a Krishna, and so I sort of developed another portrait of her, and so that, yeah, it goes a bit beyond the book. And I'll also be doing book talks at the gallery too. So that'll oh, that's be funny. great. So that's mm. Melbourne style one word gallery. Yep. And it's yep. in Clarendon Street, 155 yeah, one, Clarendon one, Street. Yeah, 155 Clarendon, that's right. That's yeah. South, uh, South Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Fantastic. Great book. No, thank 
you. Thanks for having me on. It's just so nice to be on 3CR. Thanks. Yeah, and I'll play Wendy Saddington. Uh, oh, do. How great. Yeah, fantastic. All Thanks, right. Annie. Bye-bye. Bye. This song we're going to do was written by Nina Simone, and it is called Backlash Blues.
I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. If we go to war with China, there'll be no more flags for Australia Day. No more flags for Australia Day. No more flags for Invasion Day. Uprise Radio and Stick Together 3CR fundraiser. Climate, capitalism and the future. Discussion and music. Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark. 235A St George's Road, Northcote, number 11 tram will get you there, stop 30. Climate, capitalism and the future, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm, 3CR fundraiser. Online and in cinema, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, in the logic and consistency department, top marks to caring employers and the state of Texas. We commented last week that caring employers argue casual and gig workers have their sick leave included in the fabulous cornucopic casual rate they usually don't receive and therefore there's no need for them to receive the crippling conditions with which full-time workers cripple their caring employers. But then, as COVID rip-rip-rips, argued the government must pick up their sick leave payments for these these very workers. With Anthony Orbinguzzi, Big Supremo, saying, no, that's it, and then displaying his firm resolve as the sundry chambers of prophets and the usual media suspects like Lord Rupert of Wapping attacked this as grossly unfair, he called a special Saturday National Cabinet meeting to backflip, or, sorry, realise his mistake, and accept that the public coppers are responsible for caring employers' sick leave responsibilities, obligations receiving loud plaudits from caring employers, which will continue until, pretty shortly, caring employers discover other crippling conditions for which the government must be responsible. While the state of Texas? Well, Texas is leading the way in declaring that as soon as a swimming sperm hits a woman's egg, that micro, micro, micro is a human being, and therefore abortion is illegal. Now, A woman who was fined a few hundred dollars for driving in a lane restricted to vehicles carrying more than one person is arguing that she is pregnant and therefore, under the Texas abortion argument, there were two people in the car. But in this case, the state of Texas says, no, in this case, the fetus is not a human being. She is appealing the decision, but can we spot the odd touch of inconsistency in the state of Texas logic? If we're still baffled, clue. Had she said she'd have an abortion based on the traffic lane ruling, the fetus would instantly become a human being. On that, good to see the Catholic bishops upholding the love thy neighbour, we're all born equal democracy bit by vetoing the majority of non-bishops who voted for women women to have a greater role in and say in the dear baby Jesus Church. 
goodness me, we don't want them moving into the 16th century too quickly. And a major theological dispute in Majorca over a 15th century convent, which the nuns had lived in since 2014 because it was dilapidated, so the holy bishop claimed it as his property, his diocese property, same thing. And the dear baby Jesus nuns took it to court, saying they had lived there since 1485. Gee, nuns do live a long time, don't they? And the court ruled in their favour. Great theological philosophy involved, we say? Well, yes, the big theological argument summed up in the final sentence to the story. The 69,000 square feet building sits on prime land. See? Never let a big pile of lovely, lovely money get between a bishop and a nun. Love thy neighbour. Ditto, in another brilliant move, big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital has appointed three capitalist economists to review whether the Reserve Profit Bank Board has too many capitalist economists. And the My Word is a Quick Learner Award to Caring Business Class Party Economic Guru and former Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, who attacked the government's proposed 43% fossil reduction by 2030 legislation, asking, what will it cost? Who will suffer? Who's going to pay for it? We've got to give it to Angus. He's a quick learner, isn't he? Betty can explain that the weather extremes ravaging the planet have nothing to do with climate change, if there is such a thing, because Angus and his fossilised colleagues know there is not such a thing. To make matters worse for poor Angus, crossbenchers and the Greens are insisting that the 43% isn't nearly enough. Imagine how much more that would cost. Who would pay? Certainly not paying the great fossil behemoths announcing record super, super, super obscene profits as the price of coal and gas soars along with their CO2 and methane, Angus knows are harmless, campaigning against the Queensland government's increase in royalties based on the super, super, super obscene profits and threatening the New South Wales government, which is also considering attempting to get a little more out of the super, super, super obscene profits based on the specious argument that the profits are extracted from a public asset. These great international corporate citizens declare righteously greedy, greedy governments wanting a bit, little bit, that is, of the obscene profits, is the obscene bit. But we don't have to say it. Three headlines in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review this week sum up the gross injustice of greedy, greedy government. Cash windfall for Woodside Santos on high gas prices. Whitehaven urges New South Wales to keep hands off coal cash cow. Queensland royalty rise will scare investors, BHP. And as we know, they are good corporate citizens. Another fossil, oil, led another fossil, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Joe Biden capital, to his new very, very, very close friend, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, making sure he did not pour oil under troubled waters. And anyway, as his very, very, very close friend explained, those troubled waters could happen anywhere, places like well, Turkey, for instance, 
although he did show a touch of ingratitude by pointing out the US of itself had abused human rights by torture at Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo. God, he could have got on all day. Alleged abuses, of course, and then, if only in the international interests of liberty, freedom and democracy, thus ensuring two wrongs make a right. And, and you couldn't get too much more right than the Crown Prince and Joe. And as for the 9-11 culprits being Saudis, well, the US of has taken its revenge. Justice has been served, making Saudi pay by attacking, bombing and slaughtering in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria, again showing the cathartic value of a fossil. Oil comes straight to the point. Joe came straight to the point. Wonder if the Saudis gave him COVID. If they did, he might have to send in the Marines to, say, Sudan, for instance. And just when we thought we'd seen or heard the last of poor old Barnacle, lost in the anonymity of the back bench, he bobbed up to declare the government wasn't doing nearly enough to prevent foot and mouth disease getting into True Blue And for once, we should take Barnacle's raving seriously, because if nothing else, he's an expert in the foot-in-mouth department. On that, notice former big economic guru Josh Pride Icebergs has won himself a job with transnational investment banker Goldman Sachs, showing that these days everything he touches ends up with Sachs. Upon his death this week, the Troubler Wazzy Capitalist Review said Dean Wills, real name, who had a string of corporate CEO and directorships, including Big Supremo at tobacco giant WDNHO Wills, later Amatil, which also included Coca Killer, had a long decorated business career, decorated for tobacco and Coca Killer and salt and sugar and fat junk foods, using food very loosely. He's now joined the millions his products killed, and his beneficiaries can benefit from his wills, or sorry, will. Now, this item would have long-decorated business career Dean turning in his grave as the hoped-for consensus in the government's job summit between caring employers and evil unions has been threatened by, yeah, we guessed it, the evil, evil unions, with the ACTU declaring it wanted to ensure workers receive a bigger share of national income. Showing lazy, avaricious workers are as greedy and untrublewazzy as those governments wanting more royalties from the super of seed profits. And all this as the aforementioned big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital conceded, sadly, against his principles, that until inflation is reined in, brought under control, wages will have to fall further and further behind the cost of living. But then, when... We can be sure the socialist government and caring employers will announce now we can have a wage rise. The time is right. Now workers can enjoy a higher share of national income. It's what all caring employers want. As they're odds on to tell the job summit. And it's just that they can't see how it can be achieved in the current economic climate without workers pulling their fingers out and becoming more productive. Why, big supremo Anthony Albing Uzi said he wants the summit to be as successful as former big supremo nuclear hawks getting Troublewazzy together summit. So that's exciting news for all of us, listener, especially evil unions. So let's hope the evil unions don't thwart his wishes by calling for something as unrealistic as workers receiving a bigger share of the national income. 
be thankful for small mercies, for very, very small mercies. Finally, a couple of apropos of nothings. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin had a photo of a couple swimming at Brighton Beach, the icebergs, on one of the freezing mornings this week, and their name is Waters. Just thought I'd toss that in. Same department, those ubiquitous ads for corporate bookies, and one of them, Betfair, has used a condition, quote, to suspend or terminate an account with or without cause to ban one punter, but certainly with cause, because the punter was betting unfair. He kept winning. They had no choice. Although notice in all those ads, 100% of punters win, and the corporate bookie is so happy for them. Why, on the racing channel, they even have the bookies coming on telling the punters what they think is good value, what they should back. Any punter who follows that advice. Oh, no, no, one more, finally. Notice former State Minister for being a minister, Adam Som Rack Up the Rorts, said after a damning report into Rorts, he had been exonerated. Interesting to know his definition of guilty. Good morning. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and we've got the makers of this fantastic series in the studio with me at the moment, Spike and Kelly. G'day you guys. Good morning, Annie. How are you going, Annie? Goody. Um, This is uh, an extraordinary thing. I was wondering to begin with how you were able to speak to the people who this amazing onslaught of COVID uh, off the streets into hotel rooms... How did you actually get to speak to them to find out what their experiences were? Well, that was pretty easy, wasn't it, Spike? We pretty much relied on our networks. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, like um, I, I work. Um, I, I, I do some I – was, I was doing some peer outreach with a local um, uh, homeless health service and just developing, I guess, relationships with the people that we support – um, and also colleagues that um, work in, 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 uh, at the same organisation, we were able to, yeah, have conversations and, and they were able to put forward names that they thought would be up to, to discussing, you know, their, their, I guess, their situation. This is very traumatic, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. So, so how, I mean, COVID hit and then the government made orders, you know, it, it will be so. So what happened to... And, of course, homeless people, uh, there's a whole range of reasons for why people are actually on the street. Uh, 
so have bundling all these people with all their various needs into hotel rooms, uh, how quickly did that happen? Well, I guess it happened over time. I guess so. The way that the information was shared was problematic, right? Yeah, because there wasn't um, a public announcement. No, um, it wasn't. It wasn't as if they were sharing flyers. So it was through outreach workers okay. from um, particular organisations that were funded to provide the accommodation. Yes, and so people were hearing it from different. So there's a number of organisations that do that type of. Work, sort of yeah. outreach work, like street outreach work. Yeah. And so people were finding out from, um, yeah, in dribs and drabs what, what this emergency accommodation or this hotel accommodation was going to be like. And, and, and so how, how to apply, how you get in. There must have been a lot of fear. There was a lot. There was definitely a lot of fear because, as as the the teaser, the intro sort of highlights, um, it became illegal. So all that effort, to be on the street to be on. So you know what what um, Robert Doyle tried to make you know being asleep on the foot. What they tried to make illegal in twenty seventeen came to pass overnight through the emergency powers through the emergency the. The legislation that was passed, and of course, people who are sort of uh, bourgeois or uh, working class with houses would think that they're doing a good turn. This is a good mm. thing to do. I mean, it, it's good because it's uh, because of the health uh, imperatives, but people probably don't realise the issues for people who are on the street. And the peers that we spoke to, they they did understand that it was a health measure. Like they had to stay in a hotel accommodation to protect the community from um, the coronavirus. But um, what the series reveals is that, you know, it's, it's a big step moving from the footpath suddenly, you know, a life of freedom. You can walk around whenever you like. Suddenly you're in hotel accommodation. You get a sense of uh, a bit of self-worth about yourself and start thinking about how you might like to, you know, get out of homelessness and move forward in your life and, you know, some of the people that we spoke to and which the series um, reveals is that um, the lack of services that, that were there for people, you know, and, and what was the exit plan? What's going to happen to us now after here, oh, you know? Of course, of course. And so there was this constant anxiety with people. They have this accommodation now. How long is it going to last for? You know, the series also reveals that the funding for this was in like two-week stints. Yes. Services were told you could have funding for two weeks and then you'd have to apply again. So it was very ad hoc, very um, tenuous, and that really and paper um, work driven. Yeah, and the and they and the and the workers they said they felt like um, um, travel agents constantly having to ring hotels and organise accommodation, like you know, week to week. It was pretty crazy. And what about the interaction with the hotels and motels? Uh, how did that? I mean, did that mean that people had to move to outer suburbs or what? Yeah, they were In some cases, yes. Yeah. That some, they didn't know anything about. That's right. And, and that's, I think that's a really important point. They had no control over where they were going, Right. how, how long they were going to stay. The people – and, and I, I think just going back a little bit is so when you, when you have – like people have their routines, yes. especially people that are sleeping rough have a routine. They know where they can get their breakfast. They know where they can get their shower. They know um, that they're – because everyone's, everyone's appointment, all their contact with their support workers, that all fell through. 
um, and not all organisations were able to around, uh, arrange telephone conversations. Not everyone has phones. And so quite literally their lives are turned upside down overnight. In fact, I've met a person who lives on the street who's deaf. So Yeah. <laughs> That would be really and, and And people have been spent time in prison, in isolation, in institutions. And so it's not always, especially for you know, people's mental health, it wasn't always a good idea. For them, it's not always not. So accommodation in, in that sort of setting isn't ideal for everyone. No, that's what I was really yeah, getting at yeah. because there's such a variety of different reasons for why people yeah. are there. I mean, some people have lost their uh, footing and have no place, no don't have any money to actually. And so then they build a life on the streets, which all humans create routines. The things that are happening to people on the street are the same things that are happening to people who aren't on the street. Yeah. I mean, humans are humans yeah. are humans, right? Yeah. 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 100%. And, and I guess... Well, I get what what I know. It, it was it's a, a very as Kelly was saying. It's a lot of people had their bags packed a lot of the time because they didn't know how long it was going to last, and that sort of insecurity. If you had any like AOD or mental health issues, it added to the stress that you were experiencing. And and yeah, made, in a lot of in a lot of instances, many instances, it made life even more complicated. Mm. And, and but there's all just to be I guess just for a bit of balance for some people yeah you know there a was bonus. a couple in, in, that we interviewed that it was their opportunity to get housed it worked for some people it did the hotel accommodation wasn't home but it led to housing wow. um, the 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 increased sort of um, impetus into the outreach work for for a minority of people worked out really well. Yeah, you yeah. know, but for the majority, from the people that we spoke to, what their biggest concern was what next and the environment that they were put in while they were in this accommodation. Because there's certain, you know, like we all have people that we want to avoid in our lives. Yeah. <gasps> do you know what I mean? Like, oh my god! Do you, yeah, I hadn't you even know? thought of that. <laughs> so you know, like, mm. yeah, we all, I guess, they share an experience of homelessness. That doesn't mean that everyone who's homeless gets along. That's right. Yeah. In fact, it could be a bit scary. Yes, and the series Dangerous. definitely does reveal that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there must be a code, uh, a parallel cultural code that goes with being in the homeless sphere, which is different from the code that exists existing in the uh, housed community. Uh, which people may not recognise, right? But also, I think to answer that, I think any um, people are people, as you were just yeah. saying, and there's certainly um, you know no solidarity amongst people that are homeless just because they share, as yeah. Spike was saying, that lived experience doesn't mean that they um, have each other's backs no. at all. And um, the oh, la- that's what I mean. I don't mean code as in a code of honour. I mean a code about how one should do things. In relation to each other, you know, like uh, who's who's a power who's a powerful person, who's not a powerful person. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. All well, those I, I, I guess that, that I, I was, sort of hierarchy, was, that yeah. personality yeah, hierarchy yeah, yeah, yeah. exists everywhere. And um, yeah, that's what I was getting at. And when 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 you're when you have the freedom to be able to move from one place to another, you can avoid confrontation. You can avoid um, yeah difficult situations. But when you're forced into a building with people that you may not have anything in common with, 
it's it increases people's stress and uh, you know and someone was murdered during um the um hotel accommodation stay we don't cover that in the series but one of our peers did mention that um someone was murdered at the front of one of the hotels and that may have been because everybody that was homeless was brought together and dumped in the one place you know so yeah it led to a lot of tension like it's it's difficult to i guess what the alternative I, I, I think what this points to is when you don't have a rights-based, a human rights-based housing policy, when you don't build public housing, you're, you know, people, you're for, the authorities, I guess, in inverted commas, um, have too much power over They you. have too much power. They have too much control. And the only option was this hotel thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if there was a commitment to build public housing. A long time ago. Uh, you know, that we had that. It, it w- they wouldn't be forced into this improvised ad hoc thing. Also, I mean, I was wondering about the hotels because, I mean, doesn't that give them more power than than that probably should? Uh, and also, isn't it an expensive option? Very much so. Well, One of f- our peers did say that um, they feel rather cynical about it, that um, as the hotel industry was ailing, mm-hmm. <laughs> suddenly they got all this cash to um, house um, poor people. Yeah, so it was a kind of boon for them. Yeah, very and, interesting. And they're not tra- They weren't trained. No, no, they, they weren't trained to manage. To, to well, I guess the whole thing was about people were being managed, but they weren't. They weren't. They didn't have. You know, they they didn't get into the hotel industry to to work with. They just had no idea what was going. They're on. They're not part of no. social services. No. That's right. And the, and, and the, neither should they be. And no, no, no. That's exactly right. And then there's the other thing of uh, people who live. Uh, are dealing with uh, living outside, inside is a whole other issue, isn't it? Because there's, I mean, that's the thing about that kind of living. It's all about routines, but it's about internal routines, not external routines, right? Yeah, and and also, you know, people that are in that sort of situation may sleep on somebody's couch on one night, may stay at a shelter on another night, and so they do their thing. Yeah, and they're not responsible for the the world around them in that way. So all those other options were taken away. Mm. And so... That yeah, that would had a big impact on their mental health, and so and and the the whole AOD stuff like that's alcohol and other drugs. Yeah, yeah. you know, like people self medicate to cope, and when you're under more stress, as someone that's an AA, from the AOD community, I self medicate when I'm I'm really stressed, and I can imagine. And people spoke to that that you know there was an inc- there was a short increase in benefits. And so when you're in a stressful situation, um, people do what they need to do to, to get through. Mm. And that sort of increases issues. The, um, the people who are working as uh, um, support workers, uh, you also cover that. Yes, we do. Yes. Yeah. And so their voice is in there as well. They must have quite a lot of opinions about this. Yeah, and it's, it's great to a, get their perspective. It is, but it's a difficult space um, I think that was really valuable. We, having the voices of of people that were providing support to their um, to the people, and they're sort of like the linch between the two in two worlds, aren't yeah. they? That, it's like a bridge, I guess. Yeah, yeah between yeah. it's a very difficult space to to be in because you're trying to protect people's privacy. Um, the confidentiality of their situation, and at the and same, be respectful, yeah, and be exactly, and also 
and to and to be able to continue the support that they're providing and and also knowing that um it wasn't a great for for many of their I guess clients. I don't like using that word. It was. It, 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 I guess I'm repeating myself. It, it increased a lot of the strain that they are experiencing. Yeah, yeah, and so the support worker becomes the face of yeah. pushing people around. Yeah, it's a, diffi- it's a difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, well, that's right. Uh, and there's some very fine people who who definitely work in this space because it's a really <clears throat> tricky space. Um, tell me about. Uh, we'll go back to the making of this uh, documentary, Homeless in Hotels. It's done in three parts. Tell us about how you um, built it, you know, because it's, a, it's a, a project. It's a radio project. It's about giving people voice. But when it comes down to the, uh, uh, the um, brass tacks, it's a, it's a piece of art as well. So tell us about how you've done that. Uh, well, it's about um, coming up with the uh, – well, initially um, it was Spike who said, you know, these voices haven't been heard. They really need to be documented. And so we um, were collaborating with a um, friend, um, David Border-Giles. He's a, um, a researcher in homelessness at Deakin. We partnered with him. And uh, we also found out that there was a grant going from um, the Regina Brindle Foundation, and they're set up to provide um, grants to um, – alcohol and other drug and mental health peers and consumers to create um, projects in the community that give voice to that community. So we applied for the grant and we won it. <laughs> Bravo. Which was amazing. And that was 18 months ago. So then we um, we started there. We started um, developing our interview questions. You know, what did we, did we want to know? Um, and we started reaching out through our networks and getting our peers organising interviews throughout the winter of last year and that was hard with lockdowns, coming in and out of lockdown. But we we struggled through, we got there Um, and then the big job comes to, okay, now we have all this information, all this data, how do we tell these stories? What stories are we going to tell based on what our peers and workers have told us? And so that's that's the crafts. And you have a responsibility too. That's right. Um, And that's why 3CR is so good. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, we – and that took um, all the transcribing of all the interviews. That took a while. And then bringing that all together and and crafting um, these stories. And we came down to um, it making uh, three episodes. Um, Which are an hour long, right? Oh, about 45 minutes. 45 minutes. Yeah, okay. and so the first episode um, we introduced to our peers, they take us on the journey of their experience in hotel accommodation and how they manage their drug use and their mental health. And we meet a couple of support workers who can provide a bit of a broader context. And then in the second episode, we meet some more peers and they talk about their opportunities and difficulties in accessing services during lockdown in hotels. And we meet some... Uh, more work support workers who provide the, the background context. And then in the third and final episode, we um, discuss how the law impacted the homeless community and we find out um, what this hotels to homes housing scheme looks like, you know, post um, hotel these stays. Little, little houses that they're doing? Well, that's one one of the response. I mean, that's that's a lot. That's been going on. The small house thing is just tiny house. Yeah, the movement. tiny house. Tiny house. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, that's been a response to the homelessness issue. I guess that's been going for about well, almost almost a decade. Um, but I think just just go back a bit. I think mm. the importance of 
because you know I've you know Kelly and I both have both experienced homelessness, and you know I'm happy to talk about my AAD and my mental health sort of struggles. It's really important that I you know we think that's, that people who have had a lived experience producing stories about you know it's it's like what's in the corridor. Nothing about us without us. I think that's really key, um, and just how people f- felt to be managed. You know, it, it was like they were a problem, or, or yeah, yeah. You, you know, like I get it. I know what you're talking and about. And it's just um, uh, taking some notice of the media when this was happening. There was nothing. You know, we heard from you know all sorts of different people. We never heard from people experiencing homelessness or people that had had issues with addiction or mental health. We all have them. You know, we all have our mental health issues. We all have it's just that people that are housed are able to, to do it in the privacy of their, of their own, own home. home. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, and yeah. that's and I think that's a really important. I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that I eventually got there um, because I think it um, it that problematic what is seen as problematic behaviour in the mainstream newspapers is behaviour that we all that we all of us, um, uh, you know. Uh, we do. I'm trying to think of the right word. Oh, I know what you're talking we about. I mean, perform, it, it, we all perform yeah. those. Behaviors. No, 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 but but also, uh, you know, it, it's uh, provable that uh, people who lived in forests, you know, thousands of years ago, chewed on cocoa leaves to give themselves a buzz. I yeah. mean, it's not, it's not. Um, Rocket science, is no. it? No. The stigma and um, pro- prohibition in our society has a real effect on people and um, that's why we're really proud of the series. Peers are able to speak candidly about their drug use in the hotels and because we are peers, they felt comfortable yeah. enough to speak to us um, that's right. in that way. I'm really proud. I, I think I can say safe. we're really proud that we created a safe space where people uh, could talk about their whatever they were doing, um, in where they weren't didn't feel like they were going to be judged or corrected or anything like that related to things that we all experience as human beings. And it was a very stressful situation for them. Um, their lives were t- turned upside down overnight and all their supports evaporated. Hmm. You know, like even, you know... Even are, are p- you, are the, I mean, I know that some people uh, made a, a road towards... Uh, Housing, but uh, what about negative? Uh, are people still dealing with this? With what, Annie? Sorry, with the stress that they felt they had from the experience uh, after COVID. Well, is it still happening? Well, people, most people are just back on the street. Yeah, well, that or I've in noticed. Room, or in and it's really houses. cold at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I guess um, it's. Um, yeah, I guess for for. The, the the letdown of feeling I, I, you'll hear it in in, the, in their uh, voices in, yeah, yeah that when they when they sort of uh, the, as Kelly said earlier they were really clear that this wasn't a housing no. this wasn't a housing program it was about trying to protect bourgeois middle class you know Melbourne they were really clear about that and they didn't feel bitter yeah well, a little bit very let down. it was let very down. clear yeah. really let down yeah and it was really cruel like people were thrown in and out of hotels. With the lockdowns, lockdown happened, they all got accommodation. Lockdown ended, they were all thrown back out. Mm. It was just treating people like, um, as we say, cattle. Uh, you know, it wasn't great. It wasn't very great. And, and, and just, just to quick, just what you said about the, the tiny homes thing, like um, our, our service did some outreach to the tiny homes mm. and they, were, they went in lockdown before anyone else did. 
Um, and, and this was when they were testing people. They were, you know, I think the state government was sending people out to test, rapid test people. Mm. And just from one inconclusive result, the entire sort of, because they have like little neighbourhoods. Yeah, I know. They were completely locked down. And the mm. same was with the towers in, in yeah, Flemington. Yeah, I know. The attitude towards people who are poor, it's like yeah. it's a sin. Yeah. Or a contagion in yeah. itself, and I think that's another. How bizarre, isn't that's it? That's another important, I think, um, aspect of the series is is drawing people's attention. So this doesn't happen Attitude anywhere else. To, yeah. to, doesn't happen anywhere anyone else in in our community it happens to people who experience oh, homelessness as, and as poverty. Soon, as soon as the towers happened, and then later on, exactly the same kind of thing happened in a block in uh, uh, a more salubrious suburb. They weren't locked down. No. You know, the whole place wasn't locked down in the same way. And I guess that, that highlights the sort of not a, <laughs> inequality in access to resources, in access to support, and just just the whole the, the ideological sort of setup that we have. That, it's an embarrassment, really, isn't it? Well, when you think about it, sort of, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's really sad. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I don't right. want to be flipping about it, but it no. is. It's, you know, like I'm really uh, – that's – that's one of the great things about I'm hoping, we hope, I guess, that people um, realise that, you know, like this wouldn't happen to anyone else. You wouldn't put anyone else through that. You know, like, yeah, the, the whole insecurity and not knowing. Um, and I guess there would be people that would be still, you know, um, managing how that, how that affected them now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, very insecure. Also trauma. Uh Trauma stays in your bones. Yeah, it's just another example to, the, to them that the government thinks that they're worthless. Yeah, yeah, and one yeah. of our peers does art, articulate that. Yeah. Thanks for coming in and talking to us it's about this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Annie. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. Well, it's been a mighty program today. We heard from Sally McManus, Andrew Cox from the uh, Invasive Species Council. We listened to them great. We had a chat with Marie Cooty, the fantastic, who's written a book called Daughters of Melbourne, A Guide to the Invisible Statues of Melbourne. And uh, this is the week that was. Kevin ploughed through the week and Spike and Kelly gave us the uh, great honour of coming and chatting to us about their fantastic series Homeless in Hotels. It starts July the 28th on 3CR and it's on at noon to one. It's a three-part series and a fabulous, fabulous piece of work that's come out of the 3CR uh, world of radio making. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And um, I will go out with um, Sweet Life. I want to love but I don't want the trouble. Want a cigarette but don't want the cancer. I want to be a good girl. 
about being naughty. I've been afraid to work and not by only being lazy. I wanna party, but I don't wanna tidy. I don't wanna have a job. I just want the money. I wanna be a pirate and go sail across the seas on ship of such proportions you would terrorize your dreams. Nobody knows how the world will turn. Whether you're gonna fall in love or gonna be burned, no one can help you but a good piece of advice. Says, do what you want. Don't smoke too much. Convertible, but I'm afraid of driving. I want some blue switches, but I can't seem to find them. Wanna eat meat? I don't worry about the killing and how the world can break my heart. Just one man. Wanna be surprised by sticking to a precise plan. I wanna win, but I don't ever wanna fight. I want a sweet life. No one can say which way the world is gonna spin. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.